Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You wanted to talk about something in the compliance or compliance-related field, but really had no idea how to get started? Take a listen from our sponsor, One Stone Creator. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this special bonus edition, Mike Volkoff and I take a look at the Cognizant Technologies FCPA declination released on Friday, the FCPA enforcement action by the Securities and Exchange Commission involving Cognizant Technologies released on Friday, and the indictment of the former CEO and former general counsel of the company, Gordon Corbin and Stephen Schwartz, respectively. It's a very interesting look at a case which could portend significant changes to the FCPA and corporate enforcement policy released in November 2019. So Mike and I thought thought a bonus podcast on this issue, and now Mike Volkoff and the Cognizant Technologies FCPA Enforcement Action. Hello, everybody. This is Tom Fox, along with Michael Volkoff, and we are here for a special, if not emergency, at least a bonus podcast on the Cognizant Technologies FCPA uh, Enforcement Action Declination and Indictment of Two uh, senior executives last Friday. Mike, uh, first of all, welcome and thank you for taking time on Sunday to visit with me. Well, thanks, Tom. No, this is a, it's an important case and uh, actually really interesting, and I'm glad to spend some time with you. So, Mike, you started off on a four-part uh, blog post series this week where you started off with the facts. thought maybe you could uh, detail for us some of the underlying facts, which uh, are going to lead to a discussion of why we both think this case is so interesting. Okay, well let's let's start with Cognizant uh, first. Um, Cognizant is based in New Jersey and is about a sixteen eighteen billion dollar company uh, in terms of annual revenues. So we're not talking about a small uh, company. And the bribery scheme here uh, was orchestrated by senior management, um, and this is one of the disturbing aspects of the entire uh, case. It was done at the, by the former president, former general counsel. We don't know the status of the chief operating officer who was involved and then the chief uh, administrative officer and also the head of real estate apparently was aware of it too. So we have five actors. And uh, what happened with this was Cognizant was building uh, their campus or their basically base for India operations uh, in a state called Tamil and uh, in the city of Chennai. I think that's how you pronounce it. But um, And here, what happened is in building this process, they, they, uh, this project the, in the campus, they ultimately used a third-party construction company based in India. And uh, according to at least the documents that we have, uh, the president uh, who was named Coburn, Mr. Coburn, and the, and the general counsel, whose name is Schwartz, authorized an unlawful payment of approximately $2 million to a government official at the state of Tamil in India to secure what is called a planning permit that had been delayed. 
and the planning permit was needed for Cognizant to finish construction uh, of the new campus facility for approximately 17,000 employees in India. Um, the, they started construction on the project prior to the um, uh, prior to securing the permit, which is apparently regular course uh, and in terms of India. And the third-party construction company submitted a request for the planning permit, and eight months later, the local development authority in Chennai conditionally approved the application and sent the application to a local agency for review. And then the delay hit. In January 2014, they had not gotten the permit, and they needed the permit at that time. So in April of 2014, uh, what happened, the sequence of events happened was uh, the real estate officer uh, from Cognizant learned of a demand being made for a $2 million bribe uh, by a, an official, a government official in the Tamil government, and uh, communicated that to the chief operating officer, who then uh, communicated that up to the general counsel and to the president of the company. So in April of 2014, uh, and it's interesting, it sounds like there are two separate video conference calls, but it's hard to tell from the way the facts uh, Coburn Schwartz, the chief operating officer and the VP of administration discussed and ultimately agreed to pay the $2 million bribe uh, to get the permit. Uh, the four officers agreed that the third party construction company would pay the bribe and Cognizant would then reimburse the construction company through false and inflated invoice payments at the end of the contract. And uh, they had to, it, what was interesting to me is they had to kind of pressure the third party construction company to pay the bribe and agree to the scheme. And the president ordered the chief operating officer to withhold all payments to the construction company until it obtained the planning permit. The construction company eventually agreed to pay the bribe. They hired a consultant, a sub, uh, sub consult, you know, subcontractor to actually pay the $2 million bribe. And in June of 2014, they got their bribe. I mean, they got their permit uh, or they got the order. And then November of 2014, they actually received the actual plan planning permit. And then starting in late 2014, they began to reimburse the construction company for the bribery payment. Uh, and through a series of false um, invoice claims uh, in terms of change orders, they ultimately reimbursed um, the third-party construction company at $2.5 million. So um, it's not specifically mentioned in the criminal indictment, but uh, the SEC settlement notes that uh, there were other bribery payments to others made by Indian the Indian subsidiary on other projects, uh, one in Pune, India, and one in Sirase, India. That's pretty detailed facts, but what to me, Tom, is really important, and I'd like to get your, your thoughts on this as well, is here we have the C-suite, we have the four senior officers not only participating in, but directing this entire sort of uh, bribery scheme. So, Mike, the, um, the result, I think we both have to agree, is certainly a very good result for Cognizant. They did have to pay a fine to the Securities and Exchange Commission, I think approximately $6 million. They also uh, had profit disgorgement of 
approximately 19 million. So that's how we get to the $25 million total settlement, which the Department of Justice gave them full credit for in the declination, which was issued. And uh, I think it's in the declination that uh, many people are uh, scratching their heads, quite frankly, um, to figure out how the company got the declination. And uh, this is under the new FCPA, or I shouldn't say new, the 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy that uh, Rob Rosenstein announced literally in uh, November of that year. And under that policy, if a company met four criteria, they could receive a declination. And of course, those criteria are, number one, self-disclosure, number two, extensive remediation of any defective compliance program, number three, extensive cooperation in the investigation, uh, and then in uh, profit and disgorgement is point number four. There are or were listed in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, which is found at 9-47.001 of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act under the U.S. Attorney's Manual, um, requirements that, uh, or rather conditions, which could remove a company which even met those four uh, requirements from receiving a full declination. One of those was what was termed as, quote, aggravating circumstances, end quote, uh, which may uh, constitute a criminal, may warrant a criminal resolution, but are, uh, are but are not limited to involvement by executive management of the company in the misconduct. Uh, a sign- significant profit to the company which I don't think we had here, pervasiveness of the misconduct within the company. Uh, and it's the uh, focus on the aggravating circumstances, prong one, which is the involvement of executive management in the company, I think, which has raised the most questions. And, and uh, I guess, Mike, the, the thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit um, over the weekend since this was released is we have seen the Department of Justice uh, change focus on their FCPA enforcement actions previously, where people like you and me perhaps scratched our heads, not understanding how a company got what we thought was a very good settlement. And I would point you to two enforcement actions from 2015. The first was HP and the second was Parker Drilling. In Parker Drilling, we had C-suite involvement in the form of the GC and the CFO in the bribery scheme. And HP, we had literally um, bribery schemes and internal controls and compliance programs failures across the globe with multiple bribery schemes in multiple countries. And neither country, as neither company uh, had a, a monitor appointed, and uh, uh, both companies uh, got deferred prosecution agreements, although HP, I think, had a subsidiary plead uh, guilty in Russia. Uh, I think we collectively scratched our heads not understanding at that time what the DOJ was giving credit for. And in both of those cases, it turned out, and the Department of Justice actually said in the settlement documents, the extensive cooperation and extensive remediation. So those were really the first cases, I think in a line of cases, which then led to the FCPA pilot program in April 2016, eventually leading to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. So it's possible the Department of Justice has refocused or what it, uh, not its efforts, but refocused on companies' conduct. And if you take a look at the declination issued by the Department of Justice, uh, there was a couple of things that 
stuck, struck out or stuck out or struck me as a little bit new or different than we had not seen before. And the department listed the uh, 10 factors which led to the declination. And uh, there were a couple of new things. In factor number one, it stated that Cognizant uh, voluntarily self-disclosed, but they self-disclosed uh, the conduct within two weeks of the board learning of the criminal misconduct or the criminal conduct. And in factor number six, once again, um, it's not a factor we'd seen before in a declination, which was, quote, the existence and effectiveness of the company's pre-existing compliance programs, as well as steps the company has taken to enhance its compliance programs and internal accounting controls, end quote. So the first phrase of that, uh, quote, the existence and effectiveness of the company's pre-existing compliance program. So when you couple that with the self-disclosure, but the, not the, self dis, the self-disclosure part that happened within two weeks of the board learning of it, these are new pieces of information. And this may portend a change of focus from the department really to the quality, uh, first of all, the timing of self-disclosure as a significant uh, reason for a declination, and then the quality of the company's pre-existing compliance program. We've heard the Department of Justice talk about that, particularly in the uh, November speeches. Um, Deputy Attorney General John Cronin really talked about effective compliance and having a, an, an effective compliance program not created after remediation or, or in, the, in the midst of an FCPA investigation. So perhaps here we're seeing the first case where the department is really changing how it's looking at companies' conduct and how it's looking at companies' compliance programs. Now, I recognize one case is not a trend, and we probably can't say the department has changed something based on this. But uh, looking back over the history of uh, DOJ enforcement, they have refocused uh, not so much their efforts, but looking at how companies uh, are operating, whether they extensively remediated, whether they extensively cooperated. Here we clearly have criminal indictments of at least two senior executives, Mr. Coleman and Mr. Schwartz, the GC and the CEO. And so perhaps there's a level of information that the company has turned over, what they would, the DOJ would call extensive cooperation in the investigation, um, because uh, not only did the company extensively cooperate or provide thorough and comprehensive investigation, but full and proactive cooperation in the matter. Uh, so perhaps these factors are a refocus of how the department is going to think through these. Like I said, I have to once again give the caveat, this is one case, and one case is not a trend, but now that we've seen things change in a way that we saw them change before, perhaps there is a reason, or this could be a reason that the department has taken this. I recognize this may sound a little bit out in left field, but I guess uh, kind of an ex-prosecutor, how, how would you look at the company's or Cognizant's cooperation, which led to this, the very senior leadership of the team being uh, indicted this week? Well, and I, I think you you raise a really good point about the Parker drilling and HP uh, cases. And, you know, maybe we're seeing sort of, you know, the finer points of how the FCPA corporate enforcement policy is going to be enforced. Um, I think, you know, the department is going to have to explain at some point, and I'm sure they will, how 
the aggravating circumstance for seriousness of the offense does not uh, they're, how they're not disqualified because of the involvement by executive management of the company and the misconduct. Because of, by definition, they we have a CEO or president, former president and a GC and two other senior executives involved in that. So, so then what you're raising, Tom, I think is an interesting point, which is there had to be some countervailing balance to that aggravating factor. In other words, there's something we're, we're not privy to at this point. And I have two thoughts. One is you mentioned the seriousness of the offense. And, th- and that got me thinking that, look, I know this is a $2 million bribe. I know this is three, you know, at most we're learning about three incidents of bribery that occurred in India. And maybe, uh, in the scheme of Cognizant's overall compliance program and involve, and you know operations, uh, the seriousness may not be like what we've seen in Siemens or even in HP. To be honest with you, with a systemic type of of culture that involved numerous countries, we are limited here to one country. So that's one thing. The second thing is, I also think your point about the Inclusion of the effective, the existence of the effective uh, compliance program uh, prior to this incident occurring. Um, and again, we can get into by definition, it is ineffective because the C suite was engaged in misconduct. But again, we don't have the full information in terms of their overall risk set and what the, the overall nature of their program and how it was operating. So there may be something there. The third point that may be helpful to explain some of this to me is that, and and you noted it, it was extraordinary for the board to turn over its senior management and report it, uh, and within two weeks of them learning it. Now, what the department may be seeing is people learn about a problem, they investigate it for you know six to nine months, and then make a calculated uh, situ- you know calculated disclosure. Here, what the department is saying, I think, with including that language is we appreciated the fact that when you found this out, you didn't go find out all the facts and everything and then figure out how to tell it to us. You just brought it right in and said you had a problem. This is the nature of the problem, and we're going to investigate it and get back to you. So I think there's some important lessons here or important trends that could, you know, develop as we look here as to timing and nature of a disclosure, as to the effectiveness of your compliance program, and as to your willingness of the board to turn over your senior executive team for criminal prosecution. I mean, that's what we're looking at here without a systemic problem that occurred outside of you know one country. Um, so I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I do think um, there's one other point I wanted to make that Crediting the effectiveness of the program is something that people have been pushing for for a while, including myself, uh, and I know you have as well, Tom, in terms of the pre-existing situation, because it goes back to the language that's in the guidance, which uh, the FCPA guidance, our, our sort of you know most important document, makes a statement that your, your program, if it's effective, could could in certain circumstances lead to a declination. So that principle 
maybe they're being they're adhering to that principle as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Mike, because um, one thing I think you and I have learned is it's not really reading the tea leaves because the Department of Justice clearly signals directions they're going. And if uh, you're absolutely right to go back to the 2012 guidance to point to that, because maybe it's been uh, standing there in plain sight. Certainly the comments by John Cronin in uh, November of 2018 at the uh, Practicing uh, Law Institute conference directly talked about having an effective compliance program and that with coupled with this cognizant case, and I must say I misspoke on the Parker drilling and HP, those were 2013, not 2015 settlement actions. Uh, mm-hmm. But the um, having that, that type of program and having that program documented uh, really, I think, is going to make compliance programs, compliance officers, and the compliance function of a company even more important. And I know this is an area that you have, have more experience with that, than I do, but it's in the discussion with the board about whether or not to self-disclose. But even before you get to that very difficult conversation and decision, you have to have a uh, structure set up that can receive that type of information if you truly have a systemic or, or catastrophic compliance failure as Cognizant Technologies did, or you have a CEO, or you have a general counsel, uh, and you may have other C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme itself, you had to get that information to the board in a channel that the people who were engaging in the bribery and corruption uh, were unaware of, or, or at least couldn't block, uh, even if they were aware of the communication. So I know that's something that uh, you, you've had to deal with in, in your practice, but that speaks to me of a company that uh, at least was attuned to uh, enough that the CEO could pick up the phone and, and call either the chairman of the audit committee, the chairman of the board of directors, or the, if there's a compliance committee on the board and say, you know, we've got a problem. Let's get Mike Volkoff in to explain what our legal obligations and then our rights might be. So that those are all conversations that happen, uh, it seems to me, at, at light speed in the way corporations typically work in these cases. Right. And, and think about this. I mean, we don't know if the president or CEO was on the board was a member of the board, often even when they're not the chairperson, they may have a board seat themselves. But imagining, imagine, and also excluding your general counsel from a board meeting. You know, so from the beginning, they had to wall those people off and then set it up governance-wise and make sure they dot their I's and cross their T's to disclose to the government within two weeks. I mean, that's pretty amazing if you think about it. Um, yeah. One, one thing I also think, Tom, you know, given our focus in, on compliance professionals and, the, you know, trying to make sure we support the industry as much as we can or the profession, is there are, I think that this gives, this case, uh, trying to look sort of at the positive of this case, is it gives the compliance professional another argument to the board on why they need the resources that they need or additional resources, because if we can start to get credit for pre-existing compliance programs explicitly acknowledged by the Justice Department, that to me seems like a big point. And I think this is board worthy in the sense that if you're suffering under any sort of lack of resources, and I'm hearing from a lot of clients who 
you know, are sort of flatline or even losing some money in their budget uh, discussions, that this is a reason to sort of say to the board and to senior management, um, here's why we need an effective compliance program and here's why we need it as soon as possible. Um, so what do you, don't you think we can sort of turn this into something that can be a good message within a company? Well, Mike, I guess uh, I would even perhaps even make it more basic than that. There are several important lessons to be learned, uh, really, no matter what you might think of the, the declination. Uh, every enforcement action has significant lessons for the compliance professional, the CCO, and the compliance uh, profession uh, generally, and that's one of them. And uh, But there's some other lessons here that I know you've, uh, you've been thinking about. So, for instance, uh, C-suite risk. We saw that last year in Panasonic Avionics. Uh, but there are significant C-suite risks. A uh, couple of other things I know you've highlighted in the past are construction industry. Since I'm in Houston and I typically focus on energy, I think about energy risks. But the construction industry has as high a risk as perhaps the energy industry because anything a construction company does is uh, going to entail a license or a permit. Remember, um, you know, many companies have gotten into trouble literally around just getting permitting, the permitting process. Once again, we had another case involving sub-agents. How did they get through the compliance program? The construction company hired an agent who actually uh, did the, you know, was the bag man. So we have that issue. Uh, We've also got um, false invoicing. So uh, from simply the lessons learned, I think there's some significant uh, things that the compliance practitioner can take back for their compliance program, as to your point, on funding and resources uh, for the compliance uh, discipline within a company, I would only add that to have that direct line of communication, to pick up a phone and say, look, we've got a problem. Uh, We need to to wall off uh, the recalcitrant people, and we need you guys, in terms of, I shouldn't say you guys, we need the full board uh, to um, sit down and, and have a very difficult conversation and then perhaps a very difficult decision uh, guided by not only your own consciousness, what's required under the law, but also the, that of outside counsel as well. So you know, perhaps there's a lesson for the board here that we uh, should also think about. Well, I, and, and you raise an interesting question, Tom, which is I think what this means is, and you're referring to the sort of dotted line authority that the CCO has in certain situations to go directly to the board when there are problems in senior management. And we always say that that's like a once in a career experience for a CCO. And to me, there's a really valuable lesson here that imagine you're the CCO and this is what you, this is the situation you're walking into where your senior management team is involved in this bribery scheme. So like you're saying, that's maybe this is something that you know, we always say you got to have dotted line authority and hopefully you report to the CEO or the president of the organization as a CCO. But maybe there has to be more thought given as to how should a dotted line work in practice? Should the board and the CCO have a discussion at, at, a, at some point uh, about how the dotted line should work? What you know, what protocols should we have in place to make sure we don't run into a problem? Because here it's obvious that whatever happened at Cognizant, it worked well. And uh, and they received ultimately, look, they avoided a criminal conviction 
and they avoided a, a deferred prosecution agreement, which may have entailed having a monitor or at least some reporting requirements. And, um, and they did it through, you know, an effective disclosure and walling off process here. So there's, there's a very valuable lesson here in terms of that dotted line and how you operate along it. So, um, and I take it your other points uh, that you made in terms of other uh, lessons learned, I only want to mention, highlight the C-suite risks because this is, and DOJ is really going after people, uh, you know, they're really interested in going after the higher ups because they think that sends the message. And we're seeing case after case where we have C-suite misconduct where uh, in the Panasonic avionics, for example, they had, you know, the president there had access to his own fund, which was uh, never audited nor questioned nor subject to financial controls. And lo and behold, he was, you know, orchestrating a bribery scheme for years out of that. So if we don't look at our C-suite, I know it's an uncomfortable conversation for CCOs to have, but at a minimum, let's make sure that we have financial controls. There are no sort of, you know, CEO funds that are unquestioned and exempt from controls, you know, and audit process. What about having internal audit conduct an audit of expenditures made by the C-suite? Uh, I think those are types of things that, that should be looked at now uh, as a basic uh, compliance program requirement. So, Mike, unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our time, but I was wondering if we might uh, end with uh, our own final thoughts. And uh, since uh, I threw this question out to you, I'll go first so you have time to think about your answer. Yeah. Um, and uh, my uh, point, or I would just like to reiterate kind of my theme throughout this podcast, Mike, which is the Department of Justice has consistently, while we practice in this field, communicated their expectations. They communicated their expectations in the 2012 FCTA guidance. They communicated their expectations in Parker Drilling and uh, Hewlett-Packard from 2013. They communicated their expectations in the 2016 FCPA pilot program, and they communicated their expectations in the 2017 FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And uh, those expectations are that uh, a company should have an effective, if not robust, compliance program, and then to meet the requirements of a declination, once again, the four steps of self-disclosure, uh, extensive remediation, extensive cooperation, and profit disgorgement. Well, now if you have a pre-existing effective compliance program, this may actually overturn uh, one or more of the aggra aggravating circumstances that the uh, corporate enforcement program talked about. And if that is the correct interpretation, that's a significant development for the compliance profession, and I think it makes compliance programs more important uh, to the, not only the health of an organization, but also to protect an organization. And then the second point, which you really uh, talked about, is the uh, really a couple C-suite risks and that line of communication from a CEO or CCO, rather, to a board of directors, and the board of directors then exercising their obligations uh, as the board to not engage in oversight, but to engage in appropriate action. And here, Cognizant Technologies was clearly rewarded by the Department of Justice for its board's decisive action in turning over or self-disclosing uh, <clears throat> the conduct within two weeks of finding out about it. 
Any final thoughts from uh, yourself? Yeah, no, I, uh, those are all great, great uh, ideas, Tom. And I think, um, I think this case is uh, important enough for this to be uh, reported to the board. Uh, you know, I think that this should be uh, a board-worthy discussion because of the points that you raise uh, in making sure that our C-suite risks are addressed and making sure that our board reporting function is working properly in an, in an emergency situation such as this. Um, I do think we should, uh, and just as the old sort of prosecutor in me, let's watch this criminal case against Coburn and Schwartz. Uh, I think it'll come out, uh, and I think there are going to be some interesting issues that are litigated um, relating to jurisdiction. Who knows, they may try to make the facilitation payment type of argument. But also what's curious to me is the absence of the two other participants in the conspiracy in terms of them being charged. I think they're probably cooperating in some way, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of case, because we're, I mean, the government clearly knows about this video conference that occurred, and the way they found that out, obviously, is from the other two participants. And whether or not they have any recorded uh, evidence will be really interesting to watch. So I think, just as the old prosecutor and me, it's going to be an interesting case to watch, and I think we should, because of uh, the legal issues. And then I take all of your compliance uh, points and say to our, you know, our colleagues in the profession, please use this case as a teaching example uh, and use it. This is a perfect case to make certain points that need to be made. Uh, and you can get the board's attention with the fact that it's a, you know, very uh, pertinent topic right now with the report just coming out. So anyways, Tom, Terrific, uh, terrific case, interesting case, and let's watch for the trends that you're talking about. Absolutely, Mike, and thanks for taking the time on the weekend to, uh, to dissect this with me. Wow, my pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where Mike Volkoff and I took a look at the Cognizant Technologies FCPA Enforcement Action, which was released last week. It's a lot of good information for the compliance practitioner and for compliance programs going forward. Mike Volkoff is running a four-part blog post series on that this week. I've linked to episode one in his in the show notes. This has been a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.